0: Corrections, and Bear Markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon.
1: This should be an interesting conversation here, talking about some of the behavioral aspects of investing and some of the dynamics around generating wealth, happiness, ambition, comfort, a whole bunch of different topics we'll hit on. My name is Michael Aguia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, Brian Portnoy, who's got a a hell of a way of framing things when it comes to communicating and thinking about how to actually be happy when it comes to generating wealth and and also potentially losing wealth as well. Brian, for those who are not familiar with your background, just talk about who you are, how you get involved in markets, and what are you doing now?
2: Yeah, so thanks for... Yeah, inviting me to to do this. I am the CEO and founder of Shaping Wealth, which is a coaching and content platform for the wealth management industry. We work with financial advisors all over the world on helping them have better conversations about financial well-being. I got into the industry twenty three years ago. My first gig was with Morningstar doing mutual fund research and worked with people like Jeff Patak and Christine Benz, Kunal Kapoor, Don Phillips, Joe Mansueto. You know, this is way, way back when Morningstar was a much smaller company. And between then and now, I guess two notable things. One, I spent about 10 years in the hedge fund industry, analyzing hedge funds, portfolio manager at fund of funds managed a pretty sizable multi-billion dollar portfolio with a few other folks, institutional capital, And then as well, I got bitten by the behavioral finance bug maybe 12, 13 years ago, and have now published three books in that field, very, very broadly defined, including and especially the geometry of wealth, which has ended up sort of being the inspiration for the coaching platform that I'm running now.
1: Okay, let's first start with the basics. Let's define what behavioral finance is for the audience.
2: Yeah. So, well, as if there's an easy de- definition. I mean, be- behavioral finance is maybe a fancy term for the psychology of money. And even more specifically, it is, you know, a series of perspectives on how we make decisions and form habits as it relates to our money decisions. So, you know, this is a, I'm sure most of anybody who's listening in right now knows that, you know, this is a field that was founded close to half a century ago by two Israeli psychologists, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who looked at the American economics profession and said, you guys don't, don't know what the hell you're talking about when it comes to people and how they make decisions. And so they began to write and and do research on the way human beings are truly wired and why rational versus irrational behavior might not be the best frame to to do things instead we sort of take seriously like just well here here he, here's the way we are and you know, maybe as one example, you know, economics e- economics might generally assume that more is better. Like, hey, two is better than one, four is better than two. That's great. And what we know, leaving aside diminishing marginal utility, is that sometimes more is worse and that there are certain psychological features that are wired into us as to why we become overwhelmed by too much of of something. So, so yeah, behavioral finance has become like super popular Nobel prizes, like a gazillion books. And I think generally popular because they deal with everybody's favorite topic, which is themselves. We get some pretty interesting windows into who we are as people and where we come from and how we make decisions. And on the back of that, there's now kind of a cottage industry in the theory and practice of behavioral finance.
1: And a lot of that is around recognizing biases and following heuristics. And one of the things I, I've always found amazing about some of the work that Kahneman has done is this idea that you can be aware of your biases, you can be aware of these heuristics, it doesn't mean that you can change your own behavior even with that awareness. Yeah, that's um,
2: you know, that's something he's uh, and others have have said for a long time which which is largely, but not entirely true it's it's a bit of a fatalistic attitude and and Kahneman is notorious for being fatalistic so you know two things one is yes we we are wired from an evolutionary psychology point of view with a ton of different quirks in in our brain. So, you know, we seek out or we're at least more comfortable with information that confirms our priors. So, so called confirmation bias, we're more likely to we we overweight information that we just heard versus something we learned a long time ago, recency bias. So, and on and on and on. I mean, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of these things. You can go to the wiki page for 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 biases. And so, you know, can you can you change that fundamental fundamental wiring of course not it's just who who we are can you can your awareness of the biases be met with different strategies to minimize their impact to form habits and, and things like that, that 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 mitigate if not eliminate well sure y- you can so you know, I, I know there are people who are like, hey, you know, we're we're just we're screwed. This is the way we are. Can't do anything about it. That that's that that's not entirely true.
1: What I find um, interesting about social media is that I think it actually accentuates all of the heuristics that, that you'd find on those wiki pages around behavioral finance. So we think about confirmation bias as an example. In the world of Twitter, that's very easy, right? You retweet and like the things which you already yep. agree with, right? And I made that point before that if you really want to you know, expand your knowledge set, you've got to follow people that you don't agree with and actually retweet and like things that you don't agree with because that's the only way you kind of get out of your own echo chambers. But it does become an interesting dynamic when you think about the evolution of the way that we interpret markets pre-social media with post-social media. So let's talk about some of the things that you've observed over time in terms of sort of the evolution of the way that people think about markets and the way behavioral finance may be even more important than ever before
2: sure sure how do you want to big topic how do you want to dig in
1: yeah well just just maybe talk about some of those things that you've observed you know in in terms of kind of let's say you know pre-social media post-social media or maybe pre-twitter post-twitter
2: huh interesting it's good original question I've literally never been asked this before so now I'm going to have to actually think which is how dare you do this
1: system two from Daniel Kahneman.
2: yeah you know how how, how dare you do this on a Saturday morning you make me make make me think so you know I, I, I think social media is an accelerant and an, an aggravator of the the way that we we really you know the, the 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 way we are, and you know let's just talk about like manias and, and panics and investor hurting, you know. So you know going back. 20 plus years, you know, when I was at Morningstar doing investment research, I was responsible for the firm's Janus coverage. So in 2000, 2001, 2002, I was the guy that was responsible for analyzing Janus mutual funds and you know, getting to know the portfolio managers, but also looking at at, at the way money was flowing into and, and later later out of those funds. And, you know, it was just a perfect example in the late 90s into the early or early aughts of just un unbridled performance chasing in investor hurting. And there, you know, I, there was Internet, I guess there weren't cell phones. There was email. And, You know, people know, you know, they end up on the cover, the PMs end up on the cover of Money Magazine. There's, you know, articles written about them in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. They become, you know, rock stars in, in a sense. And People who care notice these things and they chase. And as a result, you know, you know, I joked in one article, even though it really pissed off the CEO of the company, that they should have renamed themselves Icarus instead of Janus because they they just flew too high. So so fast forward to, you know, the world of social media, confirmation bias, trend chasing. Is it is it much worse? I mean, I I wouldn't know how to measure that from a quantitative point of view. Certainly the velocity of information, I hypothesize, is Is a lot faster. I I, I think social media um, allows us or empowers us to be an even worse version of ourselves and the things that we're talking about, whether it be confirmation bias or especially confirmation bias because we can create our own echo chambers, it's kind of hard not to, in in no small part because the algorithms like lead us in that way. It's deeply uncomfortable to confront ideas that are radically different than yours. And, you know, we know that Facebook and Twitter and Snap, well, not Snap, but, you know, these platforms, they, they want to keep you locked in. They want you to stick around. So putting things in front of you that that don't jibe with what what you think is not in their best interest, and so it makes a hard job. You know, makes ma- makes a hard job even, even harder. Um, I mean, I'll wrap this one point just by saying as it relates to you know investment trends and flows into hot things obviously we can talk about crypto even though i know nothing about crypto i'm sure you know a lot more than i do but you know there be there 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 grows a, a feeding frenzy among people who want to believe they want to be told and sold and you have you know sort of wild performance chasing that ultimately becomes pretty unhealthy for most people involved
3: We'll be back after a quick
1: break. Hello listeners, Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit the leadlag.report/leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, no, I I think that's spot on. And that point about social media, you know, they, they want to keep you engaged. I mean, this is how they make money, right? They want to make sure you're on the app more. So to the extent that the algorithm shows you information you already agree with, that keeps you more involved in the app, which allows them to throw more ads at you, which is how they make money. So you've got this really kind of perverse... Incentive system where social media is meant to level the playing field in terms of information. But in reality, it's only showing you information to keep you engaged, to show you ads, which makes you more entrenched in your beliefs. And I think that makes it very hard from an investment perspective to even grow a business, right? Because what ends up happening, and I've seen this myself as a fund manager what ends up happening is you end up having people that don't want to even consider your view on markets or your analysis or your deeper research, just because your conclusion is very different than theirs. Yeah, it's, uh, it's,
2: it's an important point. And, you know, I spend most of my time talking to working with financial advisors and, and, and this is a problem. And and I don't know if it's a solution, but it's an outcome that, you know, you can imagine that there's sort of a tribal quality to financial advice because you want to work with like minded people. Generally, we want to be around people just like us. That's kind of the the nature of the way social groups formed going back hundreds of thousands of years. So being with people just like you is really comfortable having people in your midst who aren't just like you is uncomfortable. And so back in the day, you would, you know, send them out to pasture, you would kill them, you you, you would do things that, that make that more livable, make, make that better. Fast forward to our, you know, tiny little world of financial advice. If you're proposing to a client a, a very different way of approaching the market, it can be problematic. You can lose the client, which is not good from a business and and, and revenue point of point of view. You know, it's not so much investment selection and theory but one topic lots of advisors have have shared with me that comes up all the time is politics and no one needs to hear my rantings this morning or ever on on politics but i can say kind of m- more conceptually that depending on whether you're red or blue you think the president from the other party is a complete asshole and an idiot and if you know they're in power then really bad things are going to happen we also know just from a pure evidence based point of view That that there's very little relationship between the the party of the president in power and the performance of financial markets. I mean, yeah, there's there's some a little bit of nuance in there, but for the most part, there there's not. You know, if you do the econometrics, there there's not a strong relationship. You can explain that fact pattern to somebody who doesn't share that belief, and the client, you know, a, a client, and they can. I guess they can listen and say, fine, or they can be upset and but continue to work with you or they can continue or or they can listen and be like, look, I, I don't need someone who's peddling, you know, this this nonsense. I know what I know. And, and it's obvious that, you know, fill in the blank is ruining everything. It, 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 it puts it, it, it puts the onus on good communication, further onus on good communication to on, on the advisor. And it's just one more thing to have to navigate
1: yeah and and the practical aspects of, of all that is that what ends up happening is as you are entrenched in your own belief it causes you to take more risk and which means having a higher allocation to whatever that thesis you yourself have come up with that is being confirmed by the algorithms right and that results in excessive potential excessive return but also potential excessive drawdowns right and that's what sort of the the practical aspect of, of these kind of issues. I think that's a testable
2: hypothesis that doesn't intuitively strike me as true because it would be so messy to really think about how that would play out. You know, I mean, what, what are we talking about here? Like just in, in a generic port portfolio, forget, you know, complicated investments and alternatives and that, that's my old career. We can go in that direction if you want. But, you know, just a, a, a stock bond portfolio, you know, the risky piece would 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 be the the equities. I, I don't know if confirmation bias in multiple ways, recency, certainly availability bias. Th- these are all kind of informational things. If if that would lead you in a direction that kind of juices you on the risk side and, you know, creates potential for higher return, but probably a shittier or ratio. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, what you said is interesting. I, I just don't know if it's true. And it seems like a very testable claim, but very difficult to test.
1: Yeah, no, that's fair. I, I, I guess the point is that as as social media kind of, you know, creates these, these these almost cult-like groups in terms of certain beliefs around certain investments, whether GameStop or AMC or Bitcoin or whatever it would be, these, these you know, or Tesla or any of these, you know, kind of hot areas of the moment. It, my, my contention is that it creates two dynamics. One is that people end up taking more risks than they probably should relative to their own tolerance and where they are in life but that more importantly it results in them i think almost having this emotional visceral reaction to anybody that tries to challenge their beliefs because it's not what the algorithm showing them and i think that creates sort of people talking past each other as opposed to actually trying to have a conversation to get people to understand each other
2: yeah so well what you're touching on is something i've actually begun to write about which is what i call identity assets and so
1: group, so group identity within the investing, so to speak.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So and you see this on the margin, you see this with uh, by by on the margin, I I, I mean, n- newer, you know, newer, flashier ideas. Oh, there is there's a more state element to it that I can get to in a second. But like when you and, and crypto, you know, cr- crypto is sort of the, the the mother of all identity assets because, you know, you've got a bunch of, you know, young men with some questionable theses about the end of the world and the role of central banks in that and how you know they you know there are elements of a savior complex that come through the owning of these like weird digital assets but like you can't knock them off of that's that spot and the affiliation with that with that asset becomes becomes so so strong that you know, it's, I don't know if anti-fragile is, 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 is the right reference, but the more you push them, the, the more, the, the more aligned and affiliated they become, because it's not like some, like what you do at your firm and, and, and what I see every day with the firms we work with, you know, okay, here's a diversified basket of assets and they each have their own risk reward profile and we put them in a portfolio optimizer. And I, no, 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 we're well beyond the world of, of, of Markowitz and Sharp and, and um, sort Tino and trainer and 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 all these guys were in the world of like in group and out group psychology and if you don't share the same idea I do on this particular asset then you are lesser than me now there's a less there's a, a a less sharp edge for identity assets all over the place and you know a personal anecdote my wife was gifted some shares of a stock many many years ago by her mom and dad her mom's no longer with us. That's been really, really hard. We have this tiny position in this stock that I don't want to hold administratively. It's a pain in the ass. It makes no difference to our portfolio. And she doesn't want to sell it because it's something that her parents gave to her. So not putting her in the same group as these you know crypto folks but this broad idea of identity assets like we should take it seriously we have an emotional affiliation with these things because they are possessions and possessions inspire loyalty and other and and other emotions if we want to put it in bias terms we can talk about the endowment effect uh, which is what this is which is that once you own something you value it more than than, than, than you did before but you know identity assets assets are probably more of a topic or issue, I don't know about problem, but more of a, an issue in financial planning than we've probably given a thought to.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think it's a, that's a really interesting point. Okay, so I want to pivot a little bit to the link between happiness and wealth. There's a there's a sarcastic line that whoever said money can't buy happiness didn't have money, which I don't know. Uh, no, the, the, the line is they don't know where to shop. Right, 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 exactly right. But but you know, I want I want to I want to expand on this sort of idea that one maybe that money doesn't necessarily buy happiness, but it buys comfort, and comfort is a maybe a precursor to happiness. So, how do you view sort of the interaction of money to to personal well being and, and emotion?
2: Yeah. So let's start at the other end of the spectrum and talk about money and sadness, because I think it's in some ways a more interesting, but also from a research point of view, more rigorous or not rigorous, robust finding, which is that there's a pretty there's there there, there's a stronger relationship between money and sadness than there is between money and happiness. And by the way, happiness and sadness are not two ends of the same neural spectrum. Those are different things going on in our mind. So the the research is is, you know, less expansive, but it's more conclusive in suggestion that the you know sad I'll just say sadness, but those sorts of negative emotions are less likely when you have more money. And and why is that? Well, it's because you can use money to eliminate discomfort. And first and foremost, what we are in life from an evolution, from an evolutionary psychology perspective is avoiders of pain. There's what I call the evolutionary two step, survive and thrive. You, you gotta you gotta survive every day. You gotta not lose every day. You don't have to win every day. You just can't not lose because you don't get another token for the game. And so this is who we are. There's no getting around the two step like this is as as deeply wired as it as it as it comes. And so as a result, we we have what to me is about as important of a, a feature of our humanity as there is in this context, which is loss aversion—the idea that losses are more painful than gains are pleasurable. Back to money world, we can use money to avoid the things, avoid danger, avoid threat. You know, at the level of oh, okay, I've got food on the table, I've got a roof over my head, and 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 beyond, I've got people around me. I feel I I feel safe and all the way down to just sort of the day-to-day nuances, but annoyances, I meant to say, in terms of, you know, your car gets a flat tire. You know, for some people, that's a devastating event because they can't afford it. For others, you know, well, either they've already bought a car that has run flat tires and it's not a big deal and they go get it fixed or they call, you know, Geico or AAA and it's fixed, you know, very shortly. So it's not a problem. So, you know, you're, you know, you have a house where the roof leaks. Well, if you have a lot of money, you're roof is probably not leaking. And if something happens, you have somebody come over. So money can get rid of all of the crap in, not all, but much of the crap in life that we don't want. That's not to say that it makes us happy, but there's a pretty reliable relationship there. And so you use the word comfort or discomfort earlier, and that sort of triggered you know this money and sadness ran when we move to the money and happiness relationship things get a little bit fraught you know the science is what it is you know there's the idea that after kind of a lower middle class income you can money does not buy more happiness and there's lots and lots of evidence to show that it's a little bit more, um, you know, you have to be more precise than that because it's not money, it's income. It's not size of your portfolio or assets. We're actually still early days on the money and happiness research in the way that we kind of, in a more sophisticated sense, think about our portfolios. But the the punchline is that in terms of our day-to-day happiness, money, you know, money helps up, until a relatively low point and then beyond that it's just sort of who you are some of us are more cheerful some of us are gloomier and that sort of emotional set point is the prime determinant it's 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 not it it it's not money the one layer that i'll put on top of this and something i wrote at at length in the geometry of wealth and you know it's it's based in part on an important article that Danny Kahneman and Angus Deaton published in in 2010 is that in the context of a different form of happiness, what I call reflective happiness, what scientists, researchers in the space called life satisfaction, which is sort of the bigger picture, like, hey, is my life going okay? Uh, not sort of the day-to-day dopamine hits, but like big picture, like step back, like am I living a good life? There's actually some pretty provocative data to to suggest that form of happiness, what I call reflective happiness or life satisfaction, does not diminish as your income as your income climbs. There's actually not great research to, there's not great explanations for why that's so. I have some thoughts, but it, it it does seem to be true that more money does allow you to live a more productively reflective life, if not a more day-to-day happy life.
1: It's interesting to to think about this because to me, this is very much related to sort of a, the issue around ambition and happiness as well, right? I've made this point to, Colleagues and friends of mine who see me as an entrepreneur or somebody who is constantly striving to build and do different things, and they they will often comment that I, I never seem to be quite satisfied or happy. And my response is, well, if you're going to be ambitious, you almost by definition have to not be happy because you're trying to change something about your current condition in life, right, which is why you're striving to do more. And maybe that does explain why there isn't necessarily a link to happiness and money because, you're still trying to achieve more and you're uncomfortable for whatever reason, even with the, the money that you have, but obviously less so than if you didn't have the money.
3: We'll be back after a quick break.
2: Yeah, so it's important here to like break out this the, this word happy a little bit because, you know, it's one thing to, you know, be happy in the moment. It it's another to have a fulfilling and contented life. So you you know that, you know, I developed this idea of funded contentment, which is my catchphrase for for true wealth or the ability to underwrite a life that's meaningful to you. The, The meaningful, contented, fulfilled life isn't necessarily one that is happy per se. And in fact, what's relevant is that much of the good stuff in life, the juice, comes from struggle. It comes from discomfort and like it's it's in it's inextricable. So, you know, it's it's one of the challenges when when, you know, kids are born into a very wealthy family. We we know that they can end up being just sort of miserable people through their life because they haven't had to work for anything. And if the parents don't create incentives, great, granted, fake incentives, because they're going to inherit 10 million or 100 million or a billion dollars, whatever then, you know, you could end up not having a, a, a life that feels particularly fulfilling. So you're, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I've got my own small company. It's a pain in the ass. It is, it's just a lot of, it's, it's a lot of work. I absolutely love it. And m- maybe because I have the emotional vocabulary, the, you know, check myself. Some days I I know I'm both miserable and, and and quote unquote, happy at the same time because I'm struggling to build something that I truly deeply believe in. There's nothing else that I'd want to do. You know, we, we, as, as a kind of side note or funny asterisk, like the, we provide, you know, we deliver courses to financial advisors and our big one's called building the behavioral advisor. And there's one moment in that course where I assign a portion of Albert Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus. And it's a beautiful passage midway through the book, four pages. And the question that Camus answers about Sisyphus, who I think all the listeners would know that, you know, here's a Greek character that was fated to push a rock up to the tippy top of a mountain and then have the rock fall to the bottom and have to push it back up and have to do that for eternity. And it sounds like a pretty miserable thing. And what, you know, this famous existential philosopher asks is, well, was Sisyphus happy? And he concludes, yes. And there's there's a whole argument there. And it's something I think about a lot for, you know, For me and for my wife and my kids and for my clients and for their, you know, financial advisors and for their clients, how much happiness comes from the struggle per se, knowing that you're never done pushing that rock up the hill. Personally, maybe it's just the way I am. It's my disposition. I think it's friggin' awesome. Like, give me that. Like, let's go. Let's push the rock up. Is it going to fall back down? Well, of course it is, because that's life. So grow up and deal with it, right? Not everybody has has that attitude, but the struggle, the discomfort, very closely associated with the sense that you're leading a meaningful
1: life. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's very well said. The uh, let's talk about the the some of the financial advisors that you're engaging with. I think there is an impression by those outside of the business that financial advisors institutions are at least in theory supposed to be the let's call it the adults in the room, meaning the ones that. Are not supposed to be emotional. That are meant to help you, you know, through those periods where you are yourself emotional. But I have to tell you, from my own experience in talking to a lot of these and a lot of institutional type of type of clients, that I find that in many ways the advisors who are supposed to be level headed end up being the worst versions of their own clients. Meaning they end up being even more emotional, and the emotion of their clients transfers to them, and that causes them to have all kinds of different views on markets which probably are not valid talk about some of the some of the things that you've seen with clients that come to you that are looking for suggestions on how to better improve their own behavioral responses to markets to investing and what are some of the some of the main pitfalls and problems that you find people have a, a hard time with
2: yeah boy a lot a lot i could say here If we're talking about the financial advice, the business, the wealth management business, I'm using those synonymously here in 2022, it's clear to me, now talking to thousands of advisors every year, that we are in a dynamic and disrupting industry. And I don't know if we're at a fork in the road, but we're certainly at, an inflection point where there seems to be a bifurcation between people who get it and people who don't. And by people who get it, I mean that those who can appreciate that money broadly defined is an experience that humans have that is distinct and weird and hard to process and that the advisor herself needs to and I say you know sometimes you shouldn't say the word need it's offensive but I'll say needs to grapple with the the fact that she herself is human and has the exact same uh, kind of genetic wiring as the you know person or couple or family across the table from them and has the opportunity in one way or another to define their own authentic relationship with money and then be a better guide and counselor to the the clients that they are responsible for. You know, there's this notion that what we want to do, and we've talked about biases and and heuristics, and, and to me, that's a bit of a cul-de-sac, really a, a, a dead end as it relates to financial advice, because we end up, you know, sort of pathologizing normal human behavior and just labeling our clients and even ourselves with all of these biases. I mean, it's hard to get away from the fact that the word bias has a negative connotation. We don't like to talk about biases as much as we like, like to talk about normal human behavior. And, you know, in the narrower context of your, your question, advisor well-being and advisor development is the first port of call before we try to help our clients get to where they want to get and this is so far beyond like the the portfolio like Portfolios are commoditized. Yeah, some people can find some better investments, I, I suppose. But the standard portfolio, you know, most portfolios for most clients are are off the shelf. So, you know, what the value proposition is for the modern advisor is is therefore a little bit in question. If you want to be that guide and coach for the client, you yourself need to be engaged in an exercise of self-awareness that in turn allows you to be more empathetic, which in turn will allow you to just help people along their way in, in, in a manner almost unrecognizable to the way, quote unquote, financial advice was executed a generation ago. Well, thank thank you for advertising my first book, The Investor's Paradox. I, I wrote <laughs> fifty five thousand words on this in twenty fourteen. No, I I you know I, I wrote a book called The Investor's Paradox: The The Power of Simplicity in a World of Overwhelming Choice. And Jim, the you know the 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 implicit answer to your own question is that it's not it's not good. You know, the paradox of choice, you know, Barry Schwartz, you know, really good book in social psychology basically states that, you know, we're wired to want more because, you know, back to my evolutionary two-step of survive and thrive, when you have more resources, you you feel safer. You, you might be safer, but there's a tipping point beyond which the more you have, the more miserable you become. And so, you know, what I wrote about, gosh, now 10 years ago was the fact that we had gone from like... Less than 100 ETFs, whatever the hell an ETF was in the late 90s, early aughts, to, you know, thousands. And, you know, you spelled out many of the other options. And and you've got so, yeah, a supply and a demand problem You've you, on the supply side. This is what investment firms do. Like their only job is to manufacture stuff that they hope people hope hope, hope they hope people buy. And on the demand side, it's like shiny to shiny new toy syndrome, because, you know, quoting Blaise Pascal, you know, the what ruins humanity is is our inability to sit in a quiet room alone. Like we get fidgety and, you know, Uji. So, you know, it's all a, a toxic brew I, you know, to the role of the financial advisor, if he or she can do it, it, it's to serve as curator and simplifier of this endless supermarket of investment products, knowing full well that, you know, when you walk into Costco and you see as, as far as the eye can see, there's like, oh, my God, all this stuff that I want to go check out. The advisor has to say, yeah, this stuff is out there, but let's. Try to stay focused on what's more important, which is what you want to do, what you want to achieve, who you want to be after you've left the store. The advisor has a lot of things working against her in terms of investment companies producing more and more stuff, investors slash clients, but really customers. You know, sort of getting these dopamine hits of wanting the, the the new thing, but then also the advisor herself saying, "Oh, I got to be distinguished, and maybe that comes through offering the next new thing so the the cards are stacked against us, and some people but the games the game's not difficult to describe, and people need to make a choice as to how they want to play the game and whether whether they, whether they can choose to win it.
1: I want to hit on on that statement you just made, which is staying focused on what's important because in the small sample, especially when markets are volatile, that's extraordinarily difficult to stay focused on what's important. And what's really important is longer term, trying to achieve your objectives, being thoughtful in your research. And even if you're in a drawdown, making sure that you are not reacting off of that instead of your longer term plan. How do you suggest, not just financial advisors, but people in general, investors in general, to stay focused when there's so much stimuli every single day that tempts them? to act and maybe in ways that they shouldn't yeah it's hard i mean let's just admit that it's
2: hard i think one of the things that uh, we professionals make a mistake on is to take the alter you know the, the 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 quick hit rational line of oh well stay the course invest for the long run the whole greed and fear nonsense like okay good we can all quote things that's not terribly helpful. The first so the, the the first thing it, we we can do in the process of providing advice, to others or even you know in terms of eq our own self awareness is to acknowledge the emotions that we're feeling like can 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 you rec- can you name can you recognize what it is you're feeling when you see markets drop and and why you feel the the way that you do you know validation is probably way more powerful in our industry than people realize, financial advisors can do a much, much better job at validating the very normal emotions that their clients have during times of turbulence. And by the way, it's not all clients. I mean, some clients don't, give a crap they they don't watch cNBC thank God they they they're just not paying attention they might have heard that things are volatile you know we all live in this Twitter bubble bubble where you know we we see on every tick like people you know have have, have their hair on fire so let I, I guess maybe off to the side acknowledge that there's lots of people who simply don't pay attention frankly i'm I'm one of them i I don't know if I've looked at the market this year like I know it's gone down but like I I have a plan and I'm I'm sticking to it. So, which leads to the second point, which is that absent a plan, it's very easy to get wrapped up with the, you know, with, with the day-to-day noise. If you have a plan, then you have a compass. And if you have a compass, then you have a direction of where you're going and y- you can, you know, either in your own head as an individual investor, but certainly even better working with a financial advisor, you can say, well, this is the plan. Let's acknowledge that stuff's going to happen. That the very nature of markets is that they are unpredictable and volatile. I mean, we can predict that they'll be volatile, but we can't say when or in exactly in what sense and at, at what magnitude. And this is our game plan. Like, okay, you know, the shit hits the fan, and like, well, what's the conversation we're going to have when that happens? And that might be in three days, and that might be in three years. But like, what's and and so it's hard. It's harder. I know it's hard, but it's harder. And the advisor can say to the clients, hey, we said this was going to happen. Let's revisit the plan and see if we're on track and you know it's like telling people to eat their vegetables or to go to the gym three times a week it sounds pretty simple but it it is hard but you can do things on the margin like have a game plan for vol- volatility whenever it comes and you revert to your compass and ask yourself am i still going in the right direction
1: everyone please also make sure you follow brian portnoy the space here at the top i shared a tweet from Harriman House around the geometry of wealth that's available on Amazon has phenomenal reviews. Actually, I'm going to pick it up myself. Just I think it's, it's a very interesting sort of topic in the world of financial advisors, Brian. The 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 are there certain characteristics or qualities that make for a good financial advisor versus a poor financial advisor? Yeah, and I ask that because managing money for yourself is a very different emotional journey than managing money for others. I'd argue that managing money for others is way harder, but, but talk about the, the, the kind of qualities that make somebody good as a fiduciary.
2: Yeah. And I think I disagree. I'd say the opposite. I think managing money for yourself, it's, it's very easy to get in your own way to have to maintain a a high EQ, high self awareness, high self-regulation while managing your own money and dealing with all those evolutionary issues versus, you know, I'm going to do this for somebody else. I think it's like substantially easier to manage money for others but well i guess
1: maybe i should put a little caveat there i i I think you're right probably when you're dealing with smas if you're dealing with like a
2: mutual fund or etf manager that's right that's right so and 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 sorry remind me i reacted to a claim you made and then ignored the question what was the question what
1: is what are some of the, the 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 qualities that make for for a good financial advisor that that and what are some of the things that that you know if somebody's looking for a financial advisor they should be on the look out to avoid, right? In terms of either personality or the way that the advisor views the world. Yeah, look, I I, I think
2: you know, my broad, you know, characterization of the 50 year arc of financial adv- advice is that we've gone from Gordon Gecko to Brene Brown, and that sort of and empathy are sort of the superpower of the modern advisor, what I call the the behavioral advisor. You know, like in any industry, the, you know, what's valuable, where the wider margins are, that, that changes over time. There's no difference between auto manufacturing and financial advice, like over time, you know, sort of higher margin things get, get, get competed away. So, you know, on the, you know, sort of is the right word, but on, on, On one end, you know, if I were recommend if and I actually get asked all the time by friends for advice, you know, advice on advisors, you know, one of the things that is important is that if the person is only focused on investment advice, stay away, because that's probably somebody who thinks that they can beat the market, build a better portfolio. And that's wrong. They can't period. I can't. I spent 20 years analyzing mutual fund, hedge fund managers. I work with financial. The idea that like you can invest better than the the next hundred thousand people looking at the exact same market is is nonsense. So, you know, being a narrowly defined investment advisor is something I would argue that you should stay away with, stay stay away from. You know, I I have a pretty just because I built an entire business around this, you know, I, I have a view that financial advisors are responsible for their clients' financial well being which has a, a few different dimensions and financial well being itself is tied to a more holistic perspective on you know what is a you know a good life a contented a fulfilled life historically financial advisors were technicians and engineers you know there was the portfolio piece and then the planning piece now planning is a skill and a craft and one that i think is undervalued because you know money life from a technical point of view is very complicated so you know i would insist that they not just focus on investment advice that they embrace financial planning not just putting together a financial plan but you know plan as verb as opposed to noun which you know people you know others have said but the the fact is that there's lots of firms out there where there's an incentive to create a plan like hey if you can create a plan you get a 500 hundred dollar bonus because they're more likely to stick around but i'm far more interested in okay that plan is written in pencil and how is it going to get revised over time because you know life happens and there's tons of stuff so do you have are you working with somebody who has the technical expertise to build and maintain and update a plan that's all of the mechanical stuff the the other piece to it is to serve as some form of coach or guide and you know back to what we said earlier, this isn't tell, telling people to like take their biases and like just shove them deep down into their, to their gut and try to ignore them, but to ask the right questions to help people figure out where money fits into a meaningful life. So if the, if the modern advisor is generally helping someone, you know, get to where they want to in life, there's two elements of that journey. There's the mechanic piece and there's the guide piece. Increasingly, the guide piece is what's more important. And that requires storytelling and that requires more nuanced discussions of risk. And I don't mean investment risk. I mean, you know, what is it at life that in life that you want to put at risk in order to do even better? You know, discussions around empathy. The game is changing pretty quickly and we're seeing. Bi- One-off advisors as well as big firms invest pretty heavily in learning and development experiences from firms like Shaping Wealth in order to help them with the guide piece. Because frankly, the portfolios are undistinguishable and always will be now. Yeah, uh, this is this this is great. So, and I actually have a good answer because I've spent years working on this. So, Investors' Paradox was fifty five thousand words. My scraps file was forty five thousand words. I wrote basically an entire additional book that I tried to cut. You know, the old line: if I had more time, I'd write you a shorter letter. I actually think I'm a better editor than writer, so I'm pretty good at like taking my like shit writing and, and putting it off to the side. What happened with the investors paradox is that in the final chapter, I began to explore a bunch of ideas that were unresolved, and those unresolved ideas ended up being the geometry of wealth. So chapter eight of the investors paradox led to the geometry of wealth, which is why I characterized it as a prequel, which which it really is. I, I couldn't have written Geometry of Wealth without having first chopped all the wood in investors paradox. Fast forward to now, chapter ten of the Geometry of Wealth, which might be my favorite chapter because it deals with how we navigate more versus enough in life, wanting more versus having enough. I whetted my appetite on that topic and am comp- even though I like what I wrote, completely unsatisfied w- with the, the treatment, there, there's a lot more. And so there are thousands i don't know about 10,000 but thousands of words i've written on that topic that had to go to the cutting room floor that are now being reassembled into what i hope will be my next book which working title is enough what is my working title because the the, the main title isn't particularly interesting but the su- the subtitle is something like you know the 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 understanding the the quest for humanity's most elusive goal or something like that but like we're wired for more to want more and we're also wired to find you know to 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 be satisfied with enough you know desire versus satisfaction they're both really important to us how that plays out in who we are is something that i just touched on and i had to cut out almost everything i wrote about it and i'm going to recapture that and and turn it into something good but yeah that was that That's my favorite question.
1: I will say real quick, that's uh, funny you mention that because I, it's, it's something that's been on my mind for a while, which is I think that when you're in the business for a while and you're managing money for others and you have a strategy, your your reward system kind of gets screw, screwed up over time, right? Because you're getting the dopamine hit when you're doing well, then you're going through the inevitable depressive periods when you're not doing well. And it really, I think, actually affects your mood outside of investing. And I think that's something that's not really actively talked about, but it really does just throw your reward system off.
2: Yeah, so there's a bit of a cult of enough in Fintwit. A lot of people talking about it. And and I think, candidly, the discussion is off base and not good. So, you know, there are, you know, Fintwit gurus who want to tell us that what you need to do is just focus on enough. And it's basically like, hey, there are deep and important elements of your humanity. Well, you know, you should squash them so that you could focus on, you know, Marie Kondo's, you know, tidying up lifestyle. And I think that is not good. I have harsher words, but I'll just say that's not good. What's actually going on in our bodies and our brains and our minds, which are three different things, is that we are wired with a series of contradictions. I call them dualities, and but and and one of the most important is this trade-off between desire and satisfaction. You know, our industry to some extent pathologizes risk, like oh, risk is something that you need to ma- measure, manage, mitigate, eliminate. Like the hell with that! Risk is awesome. Risk is the juice. You know, it's the fun part. It, it's how we, we you know, joke as we might about Gecko's greed is good speech in front of the 23 Teldar paper executives, you know, greed for money, greed for love, greed for art, greed for beauty. Like r- risk is risks is a pretty cool thing. And that desire is the engine of personal happiness to some extent, as well as social progress. So the idea that we need a more fine grained definition of enough and all of us just need to mind our P's and Q's. I mean, it's just bullshit, man. What we need is a more nuanced model of the relationship between desire and satisfaction. Recognize that from an evolutionary psychology point of view, that this is just who we are and that the real game is not finding balance. So when Ryan Holiday says that stillness is the key, Ryan's dead wrong. Stillness is not the key. Rhythm is the key. We want, we, we have desire and we have satisfaction. We want more we 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 enjoy enough and what we can do from a self-awareness point of view is acknowledge that both of those are going on and hey at any moment am i in a more or an enough mode am i in desire mode or satisfaction mode and if you can surf that wave you can get to the next level in terms of a profound and fulfilling lifestyle as opposed to like tidying up your closet and throwing everything else out and saying hey i have enough forget that I mean, on the first one, I think the answer is yes. You know, and in in the context of, you know, a conversation you and I have had vis-a-vis financial advice, it's 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 not the job of the financial advisor to fix somebody to say, oh, OK, you seem to be experiencing confirmation bias. Let me try to, like, get 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 rid of that. Like it's it's part of, you know, it's 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 the way it, it, it's the way we are. And if, in fact, you know, someone is a certain way and they don't they're not reflective about that and they don't want to change like what, what, you know, life's too short. Like, you know, whether is the right word fixable, I don't I don't know. But like, yeah, pe- people are the, the way they are. And I, I do believe that there's a better version of ourselves. Everyone has a better version of themselves. Lots of people don't want to be that better version. And what what are you going to do? What 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 are you going to do? And so you know, to the to to the market question, and you know, wis- wisdom of the crowds, madness of the crowds. Yeah, like you know, the market is nothing more than an aggregation of countless individual decisions, and some of those decisions are not going to square with the way you th- do things, and that is the source of opportunity and volatility.
1: My, my father, there's a clip I have of my father in the mid '80s where he's talking to a bunch of brokers he's talked about technical analysis and he says that markets are the are the sum total of all the knowledge and ignorance of different participants and you know what I will say real quick on this is that it's not that I'm relying on on other people being good or bad and god knows there are plenty of times where I'm good at my strategies and bad at my strategies and it's not even me it's about a rules based approach from my perspective this is exactly why with all of my funds and everything that I do, it is rules-based because I'm trying to take out the behavioral aspect of decision-making, which, you know, makes it not repeatable, right, when it's subjective versus objective using, you know, very specific types of relationships. In my world, I'm relying on these relationships to work more often than not. The problem, and this kind of goes back to the confirmation bias discussion earlier in the space and, and all these heuristics, is that People end up because of recency bias when you're going through a dislocation, they tend to think that that's going to be the case going forward and that all of your analysis, all of your research that may validate your approach over decades suddenly is not valid, right? Because of the small sample of the here and now. And that makes it very hard, right? That's why I kind of allude to the idea that managing money for others is, I think, way harder, at least in the public fund space, than managing money for yourself. It makes it very hard to not only communicate, but also stay motivated because. Not only are you going through a drawdown in your approach because the cycle doesn't favor it, but on top of that, people then stop believing in the approach because of behavioral heuristics that are not borne out in reality. I don't know, Brian, if you want to add some thoughts and we'll kind of we'll wrap up here. No, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't have anything, I, I, I don't have anything
2: to add, you know, just, I, I would maybe just a- amplify the fact that, that markets are in some sense, merely an information and decision aggregator and that it takes all kinds. And, you know, it's not probably our job most of the time to figure out or deal with any individual decision, but to understand in aggregate, like what's happening and where things might go.
1: Again, everybody that's here, make sure- you follow brian Pornoy, check out his books as well Uh, brian i appreciate that you spent the morning with us thank you for everybody for joining for those that participated in the questions obviously and enjoy the rest of your day
3: the content in this program is for informational purposes only you should not construe any information or other material as investment financial tax or other advice the views expressed by the participants are solely their own A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.